What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another Searing Hot episode of Write Who You Know. I'm Matt Hausfetter, and this is the Screenwriting Podcast. That's the behind the scenes of the behind the scenes. Oh, man, it's uh, Monday, July 10th. It is a scorcher out there, really hot in Los Angeles. I hope everyone's doing whatever they can to keep cool on the strike lines. Um, man, uh, you know, I was talking to uh, an actor from Veep yesterday, and he seems to think that SAG is definitely going to strike because uh, should their deal from the AMPTP come back with anything less than everything we wanted, yeah, it's just sort of like, fuck this, we're already striking because if the writers strike, then the actors are basically striking because we need words to act. Uh, so we shall see what comes up uh, in the next week or so or a couple weeks. Uh, it's a wild time. Hold on tight. I hope everyone out there in podcast land and writing land and Hollywood land is doing all right, is getting by, isn't freaking out. Uh, it's really hard out there. But, you know, let's keep things light and good and great while we can, because today on the podcast, we have an amazing guest, one of my dear buddies. Uh, he's actually, he was in our fantasy football league, then he left the league, then he comes back and shows up at barbecues. He's sort of like become the official mascot. Uh, Wade Elaine Marcus, he is a writer, he is a director, he is an actor, he is a musician. He co-wrote and co-directed French Dirty, which is his film you can buy on Amazon. He has written and directed TV shows of Grownish and Phoebe Robinson's Everything's Trash. He has acted in Antoine Fuqua movies. He played Derek on the Emmy-winning uh, hit show for HBO, Insecure. He has done it all. He continues to do it all. He's currently developing a project at Freevee about Fader Magazine. Uh, which he'll tell you a little bit about. But the man does not sleep. The hustle never sleeps. And I'm so excited to have Wade here because I think he has an incredible perspective on the industry and how to operate within it and how we all find our path. So uh, in honor of, of Wade, please light one up, pour yourself two fingers of scotch, you know, a little tequila, maybe some lime and club soda. Uh, and we're going to get into it. This is another great episode of Write Who You Know. Pass. It's just a really hard time right now. The industry's contracting. Come back to us and give some bigger attachments. Tell them right what you know. No, tell them right who you know. There is no, you know, it's such an old thing that people say all the time, but there really is no one path, right? Like yeah. you're going to do what you're going to do, and you can look at different people and how they do it and maybe take some things here and there for kind of visions and tools, but ultimately you're going to create your own path. Yeah, and Wade, you, first of all, you do so much, uh, which is even like an, for people out there listening, like I've known Wade since high school. You've always been a talented cat. <laughs> I feel like you've been always rapping, writing, directing. Like you have always been like a Donald Glover, pre-Donald Glover. I mean, I don't know if it was pre, but. No, yeah. you were. You you were the first person I know that was like, I write, I write music, I act, I direct. I was just like, holy shit. And that was, you know, I, I what I learned through Jason and, um, I'll never forget this. Like in 2012, uh, right when I had a script on the blacklist, you were at our house. You remember that when we lived in Hancock Park? Yeah, and you of were writing, I think you were writing French Dirty. Mm -hmm. And you and I were talking, and for some reason, like I think we were drinking, you were like, I bet you a hundred bucks I have a movie made before you. And I was like, no, this, I did not yes, fucking you, say yes, that. Yes, you did. Yes, yeah. you did. And then, and then I'm going to congratulate myself <laughs> for yeah. saying that. I'm no, because you did. That's what I, that's what I wanted to tell you. It was like, and when you left, I was like that motherfucker. And then when you had a movie come out, I was like, well, he wasn't wrong. So <laughs> I mean, wow. I, first of all, I have no recollection of that event and I don't, think about myself as somebody who would be so fucking brazen like that. But it is true that like, I mean, I've always been ambitious and I think the ambition really is more about ADD and an inability to like not do one thing and have to juggle and have to do a lot of things in order to feel calm. Cause like if I'm just doing one thing and focus on one thing and it's hard cause everybody's like, man, you do too much. You know what I mean? Like, you would be better off if you just focused on one thing and tried to take that thing all the way. And the truth is, is, you know, the older I get, the more I've kind of realized that, like, it's just not possible for me. It's not possible to be like, I'm just going to do this one thing. I'm just going to be an actor and, like, make sure that I'm the best at that and have people tell me what to wear and what to say and where to move because ultimately I just start to get a little too frenetic and, like, not calm, which really is what you want for anything that you do, right? To like find some kind of relaxation as you're doing the thing. 
And so for me, it's more relaxing to juggle a bunch of different things at one time so that when I am doing that one thing, I'm like finally relaxed. I completely agree. The more shit that I'm in the middle of, the better I feel because I'm like, I feel productive. And if one of those projects should collapse as they all do, you're like, well, it's fine. I got like 20 other things cooking. You yeah. Know? No, I mean, it's out of necessity, especially when it comes to like that, like projects and, you know, make sure I'm, I'm looking up here. You got to make sure to have the whiteboard and all the fucking the cork board and just have the slate ready no matter what. Even if like there's nobody that's making all the things or you don't have a production company, you have to have some kind of like, what am I going to do if all of these things don't work? Because, you know, we all know what the truth is. But at the same time, you know, you got to like zero in and be like, I have to knock this thing out. And that was the thing with French Dirty. Like, once I started, I was like, I cannot get off this path until it's done. Because if I get off this path, <laughs> I'll die. <laughs> I mean, and essentially that was the mantra, you know? And there was like really dark places that I went to when I was editing that movie. You know, it took me a year to edit it after we finished it just because it was, you know, just like meta with my own life. And also just it was difficult because we made the movie for 25 grand and there just wasn't really support. And, and also just I was figuring out what the fuck it was yeah but um you know you're sort of on that thing of like I, once i'm on the path i can't get off wait when when we were younger or like was there did you always like love movies and tv or books like i know you always were involved in music but w was it uh like did you get the bug from seeing your mom do it or like what yeah. what made you be like ah, i gotta get into this industry I, I mean to be honest i feel like performing was always the thing Right. That was the thing that for some reason, and it's probably because my parents were fairly young when they had me, you know, my dad was 23, my mom was 24, 25. And so I was just hanging out with them all the time. And the only way to sort of be a part of that was to kind of entertain the friends and participate in some kind of way. And my parents would egg that on kind of too. They'd be like, watch this. He'll dance on the dance floor until he falls asleep, <laughs> like in the middle. And they were like ashing on me, like and fucking <laughs> drinking beers, you know? So I feel like to a certain degree, that's probably the trauma that inspired me to be like, I have to perform all the time and what that was. And then of course, yeah. I mean, both my parents are in the business. You know, my mom is this producer. My dad is a director and a writer. And like, so we were always just, watching movies and watching tv and just like this was a real thing that was tangible for me and for us but earlier like i wasn't like like my brother you know very earlier on took to like directing and like wanting to do that and i would do that with my dad who's director but he was always the one in charge he was like we're gonna make a movie you're gonna be the actor and we're gonna make this movie called itchy hands and it's gonna be a western and you're gonna play all the characters and i was like amazing let's do that that's, you know that's so fun yeah and so it was just always about performing and that became like I was just interested in rap really young. So I started writing raps like very, very young just cause I don't know just what it's, whatever I saw I wanted to do yeah. and like be a part of that. Um, but also my mom was like, you're not going to be a professional actor until you go to college. Like until at least you're 18, like you're just, you're not allowed to partake even though very young. I was like, what can I do? How do I like get in this thing? And she was just like, no, this shit is too crazy. Like you have to, if you really want to do it, go to college, like study it, be about your craft, do that thing. And you know, were you like, no, I want to be Macaulay Culkin. Like, right. <laughs> like I want to be a young, like, did you want to be a child actor? I don't know. I actually don't feel like, I, I mean, I always wanted to act and I was always just kind of performing and yeah. doing different things, but I don't know that I was like, Ooh, I really want to be Macaulay Culkin. Like, I did so bad. <laughs> I mean, who didn't want to be Macaulay Culkin to a certain degree? I definitely like looked in the mirror and screamed, you know, of course. I have this visceral memory of me walking around recess in second grade being like, do you know my real name is Macaulay? <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is wrong with me? Yeah. Um, do you remember like, so in college when you, you went to NYU, right? Yeah. What did you study there? Like, were, were you focused? Theater. Yeah, okay. I studied theater and I studied experimental theater, which is like the way that NYU tish theater breaks down is it breaks down into different studios which are different techniques you know essentially descendants of stanislavski's method um which is like stella adler lee strasberg sanford meisner there was like a musical theater program and then there's like the experimental theater wing which is like this other sort of weird approach that isn't really connected to stanislavski it's more physical based theater and in high school i was honestly like dancing more than I was acting. I was like, I mean, we didn't go to the same high school, but like 
if you went to high school with me, you would have saw seen me in like tight leather pants and a fucking golden afro. Golden because they like sprayed my hair with gold and I was playing like a cowardly lion in this modern interpretation of fucking Wizard of Oz. You know, <laughs> shit like that. Were Glitter you dancing, on my face? Were you dancing at like Millennium Dance and like learning like, like Wade Robson shit? Absolutely. Not Millennium, but I was doing it at the edge, which okay. is sort of like a sister studio, but in Hollywood where I was living. Okay. And absolutely, yeah. My mom and I used to go to classes when I was like 15, 16, and we would learn these routines. So hip hop definitely and hip hop dance is kind of what led me to dance. And then my last couple of years at Harvard Westlake, me, Matt Dines, um, and this other dude, Jubilee, were like in the dance program and we're like one of three dudes who were participating in the modern dance shows. That's fucking great. Yeah. And did you continue doing any of that at NYU or is that where you were like, you transitioned into acting and sort of found? I mean, I was acting also at NYU, but I think, um, I mean, at, in, at Harvard Westlake in high school, but. But yeah, I mean, that's why the experimental theater wing was the best one for me because it, it the experimental theater wing is about it's physical based theater. So it's about using your body. It's it's learning like what your your approach to creating a character is kind of from the outside in. What's the difference between someone who sits hunched over and someone who sits standing up straight? And just start there. Don't don't go the the like sense memory route of like let me think about a time that your dad was mean to you or something like that cuz that's more of the method acting, right? Like, what does it feel like to hold an orange? Like, that type of shit. And I just wasn't ready to be in my head like that. I was more in my body. And so rolling around on the ground and becoming a toucan and being like, if I'm toucanning and squawking to the point that I'm crying, and then they're like, do the text. And you're like, to me, I'm not to <laughs> That type of shit was just like, it just more interesting for me. And also it was one of the only studios where you create your own work. And so I was writing already. And so that combination of like a physical approach, but also being able to do these, um, like essentially, you know, one man shows was why it felt the most right. And when, so when you graduated NYU, did you, did you want to stay in New York? Did you know you were going to move in home to yeah. LA? I know. I mean, New York, I was just crazy about like New York was a city that, like when I was nine years old, my parents took me there and it was a blizzard and a trash strike and I bought a Kango hat and put it on backwards and was like, this is home. Like no matter <laughs> what, like I have to come to New York. I always felt like, like you were trying to be Macaulay Culkin and I was just trying to be like some dude from New York. Like at that time, <laughs> I was just like, yo, give me the coffee, like that type of shit. And like my boy, Chris, like his family lived in... um like Yonkers and Teaneck. And so like during summers, I would like go there and spend time there when I was a teenager. So I just felt like really connected to the East Coast in New York. And so um, so I was just like, whatever I can, got to go to New York, was fortunate enough to go to NYU. And yeah, when I was there, I was like, I see no reason to rush back to LA. Like New York is just uh, the city that I need to be in and was like growing into an artist and a man and was in theater and seeing theater and just like doing music out there and, 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 you know, and, and starting to work a little bit as an actor and like in film and TV. Um, and then I kept training there too. Like I, after I graduated NYU, I went to the Meisner studio and studied with this guy, Bill Esper, who was, who was Meisner's protege and did like basically another two and a half years of school, um, studying that. And then, and then I got on the subway one day and would like looked around. It was just like exit plan. Like, get me the fuck out of here. I just have to get out of here. Were you able to procure creative work during that time right after college? Or did you, you know, w w the equivalent of waiting tables or whatever, you know, working in retail, et cetera? I got super lucky and was working pretty early on. Um, you know, like 22, 23 is when I shot this movie, Brooklyn's Finest, Antoine Fuqua. That's what I was going to say is that you were of our friend group, yeah. you know, you were one of the first people that were like really doing it. Like we'd be like, holy shit, like Reed's in a fucking Antoine Fuqua movie. Yeah. Like that. And then I did that. Like the very first thing I did was this like movie called American Mall with Nina Dobrev. <laughs> and it was like basically copying. It was the same producers, but it was copying High School Musical, except it was on MTV and it was set at a mall. And like it was like a little bit older. Got it. And uh, it totally flopped. Like it aired the same time that um, Michael Phelps was like getting his like eighth gold or whatever it is. <laughs> and nobody watched it. Nina was at my apartment in Brooklyn and we were just like, how? Like we should be watching the Olympics. Like this is crazy. Uh, but yeah, no, I was working like fairly early on. And then 
I did that. And then I did an episode of Gossip Girl, which was like, that was really crazy because it was just Gossip Girl was at the height of yeah. its thing. And that was probably the most famous I'd ever been like that weekend in Brooklyn, <laughs> like living in Brooklyn and like coming out on Gossip Girl when people were still watching television like that, like yeah. appointment television. Was your character, what was your camera like? Was it a photographer on the yeah, show? Yeah, exactly. That's it what was I a skeevy photographer, which I've played <laughs> more than once, you know, where I literally, yeah, I, I mean, I don't even know what I did. My name was Max and I came and I was just like, let me take your picture and like was just taking pictures and like trying to instigate threesomes. I don't know, like <laughs> just doing gross shit. And, um, and that was like supposed to be, you know, three episodes and it only was one. And like, you know, there was also a lot of that. It was like it was starting and things were happening, but also it was just like just felt like, you know, sand through your fingers. Yeah. I was also doing um, Freestyle Love Supreme with Lin-Manuel. Oh, shit. And I that was that. like kind of happening concurrently, you know, where I went to the Just for Last Comedy Festival. We opened for Zach Galifianakis while Lin was putting In the Heights on Broadway. So it was like that far oh, back. Wow. And me and this dude Utkarsh and Budkar kind of subbed in for him and Chris Jackson as they went to um, as they went to Broadway. So we did that in Montreal. And so all that stuff was happening, and it was feeling like whoa, crazy. I mean, none of it was quite like you know. I was still eking by. It was check to check, but I was sort of making it for like a year or two, and then it just stopped. It just fucking stopped. Like it basically was like I think I got like dropped by an agency, and then like just I had a manager and it just like wasn't the right fit and then all of a sudden I just found myself like not really you know able to get work and the truth is is like I've never been somebody who's like auditioned a lot I wasn't a person that was like you know there's just peers of mine who are just always auditioning and like pilot season would have like five auditions in a day and that just never was the case for me and I don't know if that was a representation thing or if that was like how I looked or what the work is that I brought in, but it just wasn't, it just wasn't true for me. So at some point I just kind of wasn't working. And that's when I went back into um, training, which was like 24, 25. And was like my last couple years in New York. Got it. Okay. So you were still in New York at this point. Still in New York at this point. Yeah. And that was Brooklyn's finest. That was gossip girl. That was, I mean, that was even America mall. I was like for, for like six months I was bi-coastal. Like I had an apartment in fucking echo park and had an apartment in Brooklyn. I was like, I'm doing it. This is crazy. Like I'm massive. Um, when was then, take me home tonight? That was like the very first thing that was all around the same time. Okay. That was basically like right out of college. Got it. Okay. So like 22, 23, 24, it's that type of thing. Okay. So when you're, when you're in this moment of like the work has dried up, like, were you feeling like nobody gives a shit? Like I, I came, I did like, where, where, where were you mentally and how did you find the resiliency to pick yourself up and be like, no, like this is just the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I think I was very much. And this is true. I think for just 25 in general, I mean, I'm sure it's different if you're fucking Timothee Chalamet or whatever, <laughs> but like, you know, it's just, it's just hard. It feels like being 25 can be difficult, you know, because you're basically about to be done with like youth, youth and become like a full adult man person. And there's something almost like historical and biological about the fact that like you should have a bunch of kids and have worked a factory job for like three, four years already, yeah. you know? And as artists, it's just so different and kind of odd. So yeah, I mean, that combined with the fact that things dried up, I was just like, you know, that memory is like me in a fetal position and the blizzard has not become this magical thing, but it's oppressing. And I'm just like on the floor in Brooklyn, like what is going to happen tomorrow? Because I don't know, you know, like I'm learning how to, oh, like now I can go and get money from the government when I don't have a job for a second, but that's not going to last long. Like what, what am I going to do? You know? And I think that's when the sort of wanting to do a lot of things all the time has gotten me through. So I was like, I'm going to pick up a guitar and was like playing like foot stomping, you know, honky tonk blues music. Cause I was, you know, sort of over hip hop at that point, at least as like an MC. Yeah. And so I was doing that with my roommate and like, that's when I really started to write scripts also of being like, how do I just get these stories out? Because I'm totally powerless as an actor right now and just feeling powerless as a human being. So like, let me just try to do and try to get some semblance of like, I have, I can contribute something. I can like, you know, I can tell stories. And I always knew that no matter what, even if like you're in a fetal position on the ground that like I could tell a good story and I just would have to figure out the skills to do it better and better. And within these contexts of like, 
writing a screenplay because there's so much technique to that too. And I had spent tech, I had spent time learning the craft of an actor. So now it was like, how do I get more experience and learn more about the technique of actually writing if this was something that I wanted to do? How did, and how did you do that? Like, did, did you just sort of go? Did you yeah. read other scripts of your favorite movies? Did you like, you know, I know people, they love, there's like two books that we always talk about. Save the Cat or like Story by Robert McKee. Was it one of those? Like how, how did you start I to I never write? read Story because that just like looked fucking, too big. Yeah, like, and fuck like, that. And also like, isn't he in, um what what movie adaptation. is an adaptation? Yeah, Brian Cox is playing him. Oh, yeah. that's Cox. That's right. <laughs> exactly. So I was just sort of like scared of him or something. I was like, I don't think I want Robert McKee. Yeah. Uh, of course I read Save the Cat, but mostly it was just from doing. And yeah, reading scripts of movies that I liked, I definitely started to do that of being like, what does this look like before it becomes that? That I think is probably one of the most valuable things I've ever done and still do that all the time of like, anytime I see a movie that I like, I probably try to get the script and like read it and be like, oh shit, this was the map they set out for themselves. Yeah, that's how I feel like I learned was just like reading a Paramount, like, oh, yeah. okay, like there's a structure and a format and, but you know, you, you sort of start to see there's a rhythm and a flow to yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. And breaking down movies, you know, I think that is kind of a more difficult thing, but it's the beginning of writing. Like if you break down other movies, like what are the beats of this movie, then you can sort of have beat sheets for yourself that you've created and start to have like a database of like, if you're going to do this kind of movie, maybe I can go to this comp and start to see how did they put it together and stuff like that. But it was also, you know, it was also about just like making, I had one of those little eye flips, mm -hmm. you know, flip cam. Yeah. yeah I had one, one of them shits. You get a one of one of them shits and you just step out onto the street and like I just started making things like little kind of chaplain-esque things without sound without yeah, without sound and just like cutting it to classical music, like little relationship stories. And honestly, that the germ of that, which like I made kind of a few times before leaving Brooklyn, um, is sort of what snowballed into French Dirty, this kind of like love triangle. I was sort of making a version of that over and over again starting without sound and then would like do a short ish version of it. And then was inspired by the whole, um, you know, kind of mumblecore movement really where they were just making these movies for fucking no money. Like Swamberg was a really big inspiration. I was like, this dude is just going out and making it for nothing. And like, they're so compelling and interesting or like, you know, seeing puffy chair, the Duplass. Brothers. Yeah. I was just going like, to say the Duplass bros. And then there was a uh, Daryl and Zoe Lister Jones. They made yeah, like breaking exactly. up words. And right. All well, movies. they were at NYU with us. Oh, so, no shit. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, Daryl, no, Daryl Ween and Zoe. Oh yeah. Daryl Ween. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 I knew, I knew Daryl, Daryl actually like when I was at Amsterdam, I was, when I was at NYU, I did this like Amsterdam program and he like went and visited some girl that was there and we had sort of met or whatever. <laughs> you guys ate pot cookies somewhere? Oh, for sure. You know, there was a uh, space cakes. Yeah. 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 Space yeah. cakes. Okay. So after French dirty, like, are you, are you back being represented at the time? Like how, like yeah. for those of you out there, by the way, is it still on Netflix? No, now you just have to get Download it on Amazon it. Okay. or whatever. Okay. Yeah, you can buy it on Amazon, but it was on Netflix for five years. That's incredible. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, making French Dirty was just a massive pivot. And that was, I mean, to be honest, that was, I was like 28, 29 when I made that. So from 24, 25 to 28, 29, it was like a lot of input time, meaning like just reading, 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 watching, 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 breaking down. Like it wasn't a lot of output. Like I was making these little things and I was doing music, which was more just kind of satisfying the urge to perform, you know, and to get that kind of immediate gratification that I need. Yeah. Um, but, but those years were just really about studying. And I was back at, you know, I was, I was at the Meisner studio and like doing all that. And then once, once I moved back to LA, which was around that time, 28 or so, I was like, all right, I've made a handful of these little shorts for no money. Why can't I just make a feature for no money? Like, I just don't understand why I can't do it. And then I was like, I mean, the worst that can happen is I'll just fucking fail, but no one's watching. So who cares? Yeah. You know what I mean? Literally no one is watching, even though I want everyone to see this, but like no one's watching. And there's, I, and in some ways I have nothing else to lose because there's nothing else really going on. I'm like auditioning com for, for commercials and maybe things here and there. And like, I thought something crazy was going to happen with Fuqua after Brooklyn's finest and like that never materialized. And like so much stuff is just like, this is going to be massive. And then either it starts to happen, but it happens slowly, you know, or it's like, it doesn't happen. So you just have to be like, well, I just have to make some things or create some things before I fucking die. <laughs>
hundred percent. And after French Dirty, after you guys got that on Netflix, like where, what, what were, were you like? What's next? Like how, where did you go from there? After oh, you- then it was another total low point of just like <laughs> just so completely true. crashing because it was like, I mean, the the process of making Netflix, and you know, I did that with Jason, and yeah. did that with my now wife Melina, and like my brother, who's like basically eighteen years old at the time. Like I brought in. Um, a good friend of mine, Peter Hagen, who I met working at Pit Fire, was like me and him co-wrote the movie together. This, you know, it was, it yeah, was, it was I just brought affair. in whoever I could to make it happen, and then you know it was Mikey really who was like watching the early versions of it, and um, and he was like, "This is actually good, you know, this can be something." And then we got into the LA Film Festival, and definitely part of that was my mom was like running that festival, and so we got into the festival, but like sold out a bunch of shows. Netflix was there, UTA was there, and it was like off of the kind of premiere screening of that, that it just sort of got swept up in this moment. And we ended up taking it all over the world. You know, I showed it in Cuba, oh I showed God. it in Paris. Like we like won the Las Vegas Film Festival with Holy fucking, you shit. know what I mean? It was just like this incredible little thing that, um, you know, that, that, was, that was doing the thing. And basically right around that time also, there was just this energy of, of creating and I auditioned for insecure. And that was really like, literally like not even a month or two after I think it like, basically I think when I knew it was going to Netflix, I don't think it was even on Netflix yet. When I first walked into, you know, that first audition was like, I just was filled up with this thing of like, I'm going to go make shit no matter what. So like, if you want me, great. But if not, and and that was crazy because getting cast on Insecure was like, I just never thought that was going to happen. Not because I couldn't get cast on a show, but because it was just such this like quintessentially black show and me walking into that being mixed and like looking how I did and felt like that was a whole other part of being an actor that I had to navigate. I just didn't think that they were going to be like, yeah, you're going to be on that show. And when you when you get an audition like that for you know because I don't even know like did your agent call did you know Issa like how did no. you how did you end up in that like you just like oh Wade we have an audition for you it's a new show called Insecure yeah you'll be playing Derek or like hear your songs. Well, I started I originally auditioned for Lawrence like oh, way okay. back in the day when they were first doing the pilot and like never even got a call back and then um, and then once the show got picked up and they were casting the rest of the. Uh, the characters I auditioned for um, Chad, who's like the other light skinned dude, like mm-hmm. the fast talking friend or whatever. <laughs> and Chad is what brought me to the call back when I met Issa for the first time. And no, I didn't know Issa. I like had heard of Awkward Black Girl, but I wasn't uh, someone who watched it. And then, yeah, met Issa and Melina and Prentice. And then they called me back for Derek. And I had like three more auditions for that. And there was like mix and match and like all kinds of shit over at Sony. And just having, you know, some of the best auditions of my life. Of really? Just like, oh my God. Of just, I mean, and I mean, until the last one where I was like, oh, I fucked it up. I'm not going to get this role, you know? But yeah, but literally like having some, and that was similarly with Brooklyn's Finest. I mean, you have these fleeting moments, at least for me, where like you are in an audition and you're like, this could not be going better. This this is just I'm just fucking killing this, yeah. you know, and you walk out and you're just like wanting to, if not actually like beating your chest, like I'm the best fucking actor yeah. in the world. And, you know, it's literally you've just like come out of a little audition. I'm sure if someone else was watching, they were like, <laughs> I mean, that was pretty good. But like, I don't know why you're beating your chest. Well, in the he middle just put of his head through a window <laughs> of a car. Exactly. Like, like the why program. are you screaming in the middle of Sixth Avenue? Like, just fucking relax. Um, Wait, why did you think you bombed your final interview? Or your final audition? Uh, there was just like this, it just, there was just like a lot of stakes. And, and I think also we had, re- you know, it was HBO. Like at that point it was like really starting to take shape of like, oh, this could be a big deal. And I think that there were earlier callbacks where it was just like, you know, I mean, and you know what it is as a funny person that when you just say something that an entire room erupts and you're just like, there's nothing better than this. And all of a sudden for this like little tiny moment, like I'm a king. You know, and so I'd had like a few of those moments on these callbacks where you're just like, and then you step out and you see all these other people who are waiting and they've just heard that. And you're just like, that's crazy. Good luck, fellas. Yeah, that kind of thing. (laughs) Although, and that, but that did happen to me as I was walking into the final mix and match because like it was me and two other dudes who were like match up with these different women. And one dude, this really talented actor um, who's 
working a lot and fantastic, but I beat him in this. But he came out, he came out of the thing before me. I was like waiting to go in and he was like kind of sweaty and like came out and he just like looks at me and was like, that went well. <laughs> cool. And I was like, did it? You're kind of sweaty. <laughs> yeah. But it still sort of got in my head. And then I went in there and it was good. It was, it was good. I'm sure there were moments, but I did like kind of walk away from there being like, that's it. That's the end of the road. And then, you know, a couple of days later. Yeah. I'm, tell me about the moment you get the call that you're going to be on Insecure. Cause I'm well, sure that was the like craziest a- thing was that Prentice Penny, who is the showrunner um, of Insecure, actually like, I think he tweeted at me and Amanda Seals and was basically like, congratulations, before my agent had said anything to me. I don't remember if it was like a DM or if it was public or what. And even, you know, even then Twitter yeah. was different than it was now. And I've never been someone who's like up on Twitter or social media really. But like I saw that, obviously. It started where he just started following me. And I was like, what does this mean? This must mean something, <laughs> yeah. you know? And then like said congratulations. And I was like, that has to mean something crazy and was like oh my god i think i think this is happening i think this is happening and then yeah and then it's like a slower thing that occurs where you're like you know okay now they've told me that it looks like the an offer's coming in when does the offer come in the offer comes in you know it's not for what you think it is exactly i mean you've gotten the role but it's like you know whatever it's just always sort of like there's nothing that matches the moment of like that first thing of being like, you've done it. But then after the you've done it comes all the caveats. You yeah. know what I mean? I don't know if you find that, but like. Yes. And I, that's what I was going to ask you. You know, when, as you know, within writing, it's like when you get an offer for a script or a show, you're like, they'll give you a low ball and you're like, no, no, no. And then you give them a high ball. And then sometime after four and five back and forth, you mean the middle in the middle as an actor, especially when it's like, you know, your first semi big TV role, do you negotiate? Like, are you expected to just be like, yes, thank you. Like I'll take it. I think so. I think at that point I was pretty much like, you know, I'm just fucking happy to be here and I'm sure they got me a little bit more money, but also there wasn't going to be much wiggle room. And, and the truth is, is, you know, that, that became a thing for me on that show. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I mean, I probably shouldn't, but I still do say fairly publicly, like, everybody got rich on that show but me. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the truth is, and this is the truth, is, like, the show was never about me. I mean, yeah. that show was never for me to get rich, to be honest. I mean, that was about two black women and their friends and that life, and I was, you know, essentially the husband to the fourth woman on that show and was a light-skinned dude on that show. And so I, at the same time, I'm like that obviously that show changed my life just in terms of being part of something so culturally relevant and yeah. like game changing, but also to be recognized as black, you know, by Issa was uh, really emotional for me. It was like, they saw like Issa was like, of course you're part of this world. What are you talking about? Of course you're a black man that deserves to be a part of this black show. And like that, there's no money that you put to that. You know yeah. what I'm saying? But I will say everybody else got fucking rich off that show for me. And like that would that sucked. You know, that was hard, too, because that was me being like, OK, I, I, like I remember actually tweeting when I first got the job. I was like, HBO pays my bills like that kind of thing. And then like realizing like I'm getting paid beans like I can't live <laughs> off this. And that's essentially why I went into the writer's room at Gronish because I couldn't afford my life being on Insecure. And and kind of everybody else on that show was like. We're on Insecure. We can, like, afford to go do other things. I couldn't afford to do French Dirty again because I was getting married. I was, like, growing up, yeah. up you know what I'm saying? And, yeah. like, we were, like, paying for our wedding and, like, had no money to do that. And so literally, like, a month before we actually got married, I got a job on Gronish as a staff writer. And that was, you know, the beginning of that. That was five years ago. And so it was overlapping with the last three seasons of Insecure, I was also doing three seasons of Gronish. Let's talk about Gronish for a minute. Um, so interview process. Did you have to interview with Kenya? Like, did you have to send a sample? Like, were you were, were you already known of like, oh, no, like that's Wade from Gronish. So Not I'm, Gronish, I'm sorry. That's Wade from Insecure. How does that work? I when you're a, sort of like a, on another show and people know you. Yeah, I feel like a little bit. I mean, I think the show obviously had already, even after the first season, was like a big deal. But I wasn't like on it on i mean even the whole time I, i'm not like on it on it on it i i, I am but also you came and go you know you were there were episodes where you were more exactly present. i was more of like a one-liner type dude you know 
And so it wasn't something that it was like, that's that dude from Insecure. Yeah. It was like, oh shit, aren't you? On I feel like, yeah, exactly. You are, right? <laughs> like that kind of thing. And so, uh, but no, a friend of mine was uh, working really closely with Kenya and was working over at Blackish. And then when Grownish started, he kind of went over and helped in that first season. And then in the second season, basically a staff writer dropped out and there was an opening. And my friend was like, they're looking for someone like you. like, And sort of gave me, because being a staff writer wasn't something that was in my purview. I was trying to figure out the next movie. like, Yeah, and that, that depression hold or whatever after French Dirty or during French Dirty was more about like, I don't know how to get the next movie going. I don't know how to do it on a bigger scale. I kind of only know how to do it strictly off instinct and like scraping and being gully about it, you know, but like wanting to do it bigger and more proper was not something that I knew because there was just so much still to learn. And so I was kind of like struggling with that as I, you know, got cast on insecure and all that. Um, and, and honestly acting kind of took over a little bit again from the writing and directing portion after French Dirty came out because it just started working out for me again. I did Insecure and I did Snowfall and like I started doing some plays like in LA, like at CTG. And so I was just like, oh yeah, I'm an actor that like has made a movie and I will make another one again and I want to, but I'm not like crazily trying to figure that out. Even though I got signed to UTA and that was a whole like kind of head fuck too because I was like, I don't really know how to engage with you or how to have this relationship because I'm not somebody who has like a hundred scripts ready to like go and be made. So I have to like figure this out, you know? Did they like bring you in for a signing meeting where like, yeah. this will be your this and this will be. It was awesome. With Lindsay. Oh really? Lindsay yeah. was your agent? Yeah. Holy shit. For like two seconds until she went to be know, a manager. Yeah. But she was, um, yeah, she was actually on the team for, for a second. But, uh, and then, yeah, and then basically... So Gronish, yeah, we're back yeah. to Gronish. And so I was, like, kind of in this mood where I was, like, I'm acting, but the acting isn't paying me, theater isn't paying me, I'm basically just doing, like, kind of bigger, like, recurring, I mean, really, like, bigger guest stars kind of recurring roles on these really dope shows. I mean, Insecure and Snowfall are, like, now classics, and, and L.A. classics. Yeah. So I, like, I knew something right was happening, but I didn't know how to then go to the next thing. And then this opportunity came up, which which essentially meant really stopping auditions, you know? I mean, that that meant, like, I'm going to kind of do this other thing that I did for a second, but now I was saying I was an actor and, like, trying to work on my, like, TV show or my movie, but it wasn't materializing, really. And so now I'm going to, like, go and be a staff writer, which also gives you a whole nother color. You know what I'm saying? Like, which I'm sure your reps talk about a lot. It's like people see you as a creator. They don't even want you as a staff writer because they want to know what your big ideas are. They don't want you to just come in and be an instrument in someone else's band. They, they actually want you to stay on the train of being this big creator. But obviously it's so invaluable to go in the room and study under someone else and like learn the process from the inside. So it was it was a big decision to like essentially tell my agents like because it didn't come from my agents it came from my homie who yeah and I had like kind of met Kenya and you know sort of in passing because my friend was really close with him and then I sat down with Craig and Julie I had this like one meeting with them where you know I told a story Shouts about shouts to Craig Doyle by the way and Julie Bean the the best the two of them the most crass human beings I've ever come across and I'm just grateful for them every second. Um, but yeah, like sat down with them at the Starbucks on Ventura and Sherman Oaks and was like, you know, telling them a story about how my friend kind of was responsible for me smoking crystal meth one time. You know what I mean? <laughs> and they were like, oh, you're perfect for this. You'll be great. Yeah. You'll be great. For did they hire show. you on the spot or did you get a call? How does that work? Yeah, I got a call like a couple of days later. It was like coming together really fast because like the room was starting in a week. And it was a staff writing position that had fell out. It was another one of Kenya's, you know, dudes yeah. that that he works with who um, was going to... It was already brewing that he was moving Netflix and, mm. like, that kind of thing. So he was getting ready to kind of do this departure and was setting up the second season of Grownish. And so, yeah, I mean, then I walked in, like... Basically, a week after that meeting, no idea what to expect. Yeah, tell like, us about your first day, weeks, whatever. I mean, Kenya was there the first, like, week or two. And so, in some ways, that was cool because he kind of knew me through this other guy. And there was, like, a in in that sense, yeah. you know. But also, there was so much to learn. It was a big room, you know, comedy rooms. And especially, like, the, we, we were doing 22 episodes. Like, oh it was, like... 
you needed people who were like joke assassins. You needed people who were story monsters. Like these were all things that I didn't know about. I didn't. Basically, my boy had just told me all you got to do is be able to read a room. You know, which which in a way is not wrong. Yeah. You know, just be able to kind of tell stories and read a room and mine your life and give them stuff. And it's not your job to really like figure it out. Your job is to just give them as much material so that they can figure it out because they know really what works. And yes, you know, and like, obviously you have it great, but like your job is to just fucking tell stories that people can use in moments like this, you know? And uh, I mean, the very first day in the writer's room, I, 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 I can't tell if this was like the first day, but this was definitely early. And like we were trying to figure out like, you know, Zoe was like angry about, I don't know, something. And she was like coming to some classroom with that type of attitude of being upset about something. We were trying to figure out the the device for it or that kind of thing. And I like told this weird ass story about like this, <laughs> this girl in my theater class who was like came into came into class one day so upset because she had stomped on a pigeon like she literally was like marching through Washington Square Park and she was also like kind of a tall bigger woman <laughs> and just like stepped on a pigeon's neck and like killed it and was like distraught coming into class and everyone was looking at me like what are you talking about like how does this make any sense for the show that we're making you know and i think those first couple weeks people were like this dude is not going to do well here you know like this is going to like it was like they liked me but didn't understand how it worked and then and then I think I started to figure out, like, you play your instrument. You know what I mean? You see what you're good at. And and being a director was really helpful for me on a show like that because it was all about style. And it was all about, like, how do we do something a la something else? You know, it was always kind of homaging other yeah. films and things like that. And so that became really helpful for me just style-wise because nobody else really had that background. And once I started using that and then you start to figure out like, okay, how do your stories meld with the stories that we're trying to tell and how can they be most helpful? Then really quickly, actually, I started being somebody that they could rely on. And so it was just invaluable that through those three years at Gronish of just, you know, and ended up towards the end of like directing an episode. Yeah, that's what I wanted to ask you. Well, first of all, did you get an episode that first year? No, no, absolutely not. And were you like, I never even asked. I mean, a little bit, because I feel like they would always ask me like directorial things and their whole thing was like taking chances on young filmmakers. I mean, they were giving a lot of people their first episodes and I had made a fucking feature. So I was yeah. like, what is this? But also the precedent of giving a writer an episode in the room is like kind of sticky. There are so many people before you that want one, like Craig, like other people that in some ways deserve it more than you do because they've been there and they put the time and they want to flex their muscles as like, you know, a, a television director. So it it took me until my final season. And it was actually so I did those first two seasons and then the last season was COVID. And right before that, actually, Insecure asked me to write on the final season. Oh, shit. And I turned them down. Oh, what? I didn't know that. Yeah, it was very difficult. That was a hard, hard choice. <laughs> um, and part of it was out of loyalty to Gronish because they had just been so good to me. And like the room was like about to start on Gronish. So I literally would have just kind of been leaving them in the lurch. And also I used it to make them give me an episode to direct because they didn't those first two seasons. And so finally uh, they gave me one and, um, you know, and that was massive. So, and it was crazy because I was literally shooting the finale of Insecure while I was directing an episode at Grownish. Like, and both of those times were coming to a close. And this is like, you know, 2021 or whatever. This is the top of 2021 is that was ending. And like this massive chapter after French Dirty of like, being on the sidelines on these really big shows, you know, like Insecure and Gronish in these different capacities. And like the last couple of years has really been about how do I start to get back into the driver's seat of like what I really want to do and say. And, you know, that's sort of where we are. Before we get to where we are, I wanted to ask you, um, what was it like working with Phoebe Robinson on Everything's Trash? Incredible. I love Phoebe. And also I got to work with Jonathan Groff, Amazing. who is just a legend and just one of the most kind and also incisive people. Like he's just always watching. He's all, you know, he's the type of person that like, there's really no bad pitch for him. He can turn anything into something that you're like, 
that someone pitched that and I was like embarrassed for them. And then Groff was able to be like, Oh, interesting. So I wonder if it's like boom, boom, boom. And you just like, he does this math that all of a sudden you're like, you've made something out of like what I thought was just fucking garbage and turned it in. And like, you know, that's part of why he's such an incredible, um, you know, creator whisperer. Right. Cause his whole thing has been, he's like helped these other people find their voices and make these massive game changing shows. Um, but he is just like, yeah. So, so the opportunity to work with him. And then also, I mean, the reason that, uh, the Phoebe thing was so interesting to me is cause I also wanted to just be again, close to someone who was doing a creator star thing. Um, and Phoebe is just like, she's just such a delight, you know, she's like so unapologetically herself, you know, she's very specific and sort of how she talks and who she is and like, seeing that in a black person similarly with Issa, you know what I mean? Is like, you are going to be exactly who you are. And that is always something that you want to gravitate towards, yeah. you know? So, um, so yeah, I mean, sadly that show was, you know, short lived one season, but I thought there was so much fun stuff to explore with that and think that she is, uh, really, really special and, um, necessary. Good. Know, because us. right before the writer's strike, she came on to produce a show that I was creating. Oh my God. And we were going to take it out. And we like basically had like a preemptive buy from a studio. And then the executive, oh. you know, they like, they basically fired everyone at ABC studios the week before the strike. Ooh, yeah. I want to, I'm sorry. Uh, well, I'll tell yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And, um, but like, I am just like dying for the strike to end so I can yeah. like, I haven't even met her. It's been all through like, Zoom, you know, like she so. gives me notes like via her executive on Zoom or whatever. Yeah. And we were just about to meet and then just like yeah. writer strike. Well, once that picks back up, because it will, you know, and yeah. that is something that I think about with this strike. I mean, we don't know what's going to come on the other side of it, but in some ways it is a little bit of like a freeze, you know, different yeah. from COVID. COVID was like, People were still selling. The business was still going. There was like a buying, a weird buying frenzy. So a bottleneck thing happened. But like it does sort of feel like things aren't bottlenecking right now because everything is just stopped. And people, I think, are going to want to pick back up yeah. where they were. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, who fucking knows? But anyways, Phoebe is the absolute best. And I'm so happy you guys are working together because I feel like you guys will make some really funny shit. When I found out that U2 is her favorite band, I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. This is hilarious. Yeah, and like is deep in with Bono. Yeah, like yeah, she yeah, like that. goes on tour with him or something. They like they they send text messages to each other. But, that's crazy. I mean, she's a manifester. You know what I mean? She's somebody who's like really just been like, I am gonna keep going. If you've read her books, especially like the early What's joint. what should I read? because I, I would love to read a book of hers. I didn't even know. Yeah, I mean the the newest one, they're they're all fantastic, but the one that we base the show off of, which is everything's trash, but it's fine, is just so helpful as an artist finding their way because it's like she has lived the whole thing, which is like, you know, similarly that 99.9% of us live with, which is like, it just doesn't happen right away. You know what I mean? And like you find these little like moments of glory and then you're just back to like counting pennies to like get a stick of gum because you're just like, how the fuck do I make this shit work? You know what I mean? And she just brought such a funny thing, I think, to that journey of, um, you know, I just got to keep going. I got to keep going because I just am this person that has to tell these stories. Pre-Strike Wade, where were you? I would say now, but like now no one's working. Like I knew you were, you had a show at Freebie. Is that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tell I mean, me that's, about that. You know, that's yeah. unannounced, but yeah. Oh, we, okay. I won't say more. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to discuss it because it's cool and it's the first show that I've actually sold. Yeah, that's um, what I want to talk about. What was yeah. the pitching experience like? I mean, the pitching experience for that, I mean, first off, the development process was that was two years of development. What? Yeah, yeah. Um, just I like mean, getting the pitch ready or did you write no, a script? No, no, no. I mean, it, it wasn't just getting the pitch ready. It was sort of packaging it. It was like, it It was, um, I mean, I'll talk about it a little bit. I don't yeah. give a fuck, to be honest. But it is, uh do I want to talk about yeah, it? You yeah, you can listen. I promise you, no, uh, uh, Jeff no, Blackburn I've, and Jen Salky are not listening to this. You're right. I don't feel, give a shit. Feel, Vernon Sanders, um, if you're listening, we're sorry. Basically, it was it was in the time that I was talking about where like Gronish and Insecure was wrapping up, like 2021, right? And I was like, how do I start to get my own stuff? Because I hadn't really had real development going on. Like I had stuff that I was doing personally, but I wasn't like engaged with even producers, yeah. like a little bit here and there. And there was one thing that like kind of got sold to Freeform and then fell apart. And like, 
And so this was just an open writing assignment that my agent had hooked up, which was like so rare. Not because my agent is no, not I know the what you mean. There's like the world. there's like three writing assignments, and they all go to Marvel writers. Yeah, and just in general, it's like you have to get a certain place in order to whatever. The bottom line is this was something that she hooked up, which was they wanted to do a TV show about Fader magazine, and like. Fader was just a magazine that I was super familiar with being in New York in the early 2000s when it was like really in its heyday. And so it was it was also like I was kind of surprised that I was even possibly going to be able to like meet on it because I was like, this seems like a big deal and like kind of a big property. But uh, it was open and I guess not that many people were that interested in it. So then I met with um, escape artists who had like gotten the rights and MGM where they had their deal. And I just started having meetings with them and you do the kind of whole song and dance to even be chosen as the writer. And yeah. that took like a month or two, eventually getting to the place where I like told this producer who I love, I was like, I'm not going to fucking give you any more pages or anything else until you tell me that we're doing this. So you have to fucking figure that out. Like I'm done with this, like how, like what else I can give you while you're still talking to other people. So that took a second. And then once once that took a second, it was like, all right, had this pitch, had to pitch to MGM just for them to sign off. Yeah, just to get the studio, right? Yeah, and that was... And then was, it took like six months to make a deal with them or something? Yeah, it's and ridiculous. even... Well, even the process with MGM, to be honest, was like, I pitched to MGM and, uh, you know, one of the big guys over there was like, okay, so here's where, where I come out on all this. And like, basically was saying like, I don't really love kind of where you're at with this or what it is. And, uh, and so then I told the producer, I was like, well, then you should fucking go find someone else because this is like, I don't really love with this. And they're like, no wait, Like we want to do this with you. Maybe let's think about what he's saying a little bit. And, and that's always the process, right? There was something to sort of hear in what he was saying, even though I wanted to tell him to go fuck himself. And so thought about it and we scheduled this call where I was going to like get on and kind of do the little tap dance thing and tell him like, oh yeah, thank you for those notes. I've thought about it further. This is actually kind of the deepening thing. What do you think? And so I'm on this call that they had, you know, that escape artist had orchestrated and like I'm talking and talking and talking and like 15 minutes in, I'm like, yeah, so, you know, that's basically where I'm at with it. And it's like this odd silence. And then his assistant comes on and he's like, yeah, hey, so he actually jumped off like a couple minutes into the call. So sorry about that. Uh, and I was just like livid. I was like, I would I'm off this shit. Somebody. And I told the producer, I was like, fuck you, I'm done. Like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, you can just take the shit and shove it up your ass or whatever. And, um, you know, and, and uh, gratefully, like this this producer was like, I will make that work. That was fucked up. That should not have happened. Blah, 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 blah. I'll talk to them. And then, you know, and then I was the guy. And then it's the six months of making the deal. And then we wanted a music person. Like we wanted a big music person to be on board. And they had had this whole list because they had been developing it. They had the rights to the oral history. And, um, and then I was like, uh, you know, they're, they're, the, the list that they had just didn't feel right. And I was sort of like, I think this is either, um, uh, Mark Bronson mm-hmm. or Questlove. We went to, I went to Harley. I was like, yo, like, would you and Mark be interested in this? Blah, 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 blah. And he was like, yeah, that sounds amazing. And then like, he never got back to me. Classic. And you know, whatever, that's how it is. So I was like, all right, well we should go to Quest. And like crazily enough, Quest wanted to meet. And like that meeting was crazy. Where did you meet Quest? On Zoom. Oh, right. You know? Okay. It was on Zoom. And we we met on Zoom. He was like, he pops on for a second onto the Zoom and he's like getting his hair braided. And by the way, like everybody who I love at Escape Artists, like are all white dudes. You know what I mean? And then there was like the fader guys are these two white dudes, you know, uh, Rob Stone and John, uh, Rob and John. You know what I mean? And um, I... Love all of those guys very much, and they're so fucking helpful, obviously, in, like, making this show uh, a reality and happening. But um, it was also, like, I'm going to talk about – because the, the the approach that I wanted to do was, like, follow the young gonzo journalists that were all of color, you know, and kind of push the creators a little bit to the side. I mean, they're very much in it. But, like, if it's Mad Men, you know, just – not really following Don Draper as the lead, but following, you know, really Peggy as the lead, which maybe is, you know. No, Peggy and Stan are my favorite characters. I would watch a fucking show with them all day. And there's probably an argument to say that Peggy is the lead to a certain degree. Uh, I'd probably lose that argument, but still, you know what it no, is. No, dude, like, the, the, I always think, like, the greatest love story in that whole show is Don and Peggy, and the best part is, like, right. you know that episode where they dance, and you're like, please don't fuck, please don't fuck, please yes. don't fuck, and they keep it wholesome, and you're just like, yes, okay, yeah. a platonic, like no, a wonderful mentorship. No, that, that, I mean, that show is the best. But anyway, 
the then it just came down to I won't I won't get into the nuances of meeting Questlove, but it was an experience, and it was like right before the Oscars. He was on this run mm. with oh, um, uh, Summer Soul, yeah, with Summer of Soul. Like he was literally like one of the biggest things oh, in shit. the fucking entertainment industry at that point. <laughs> and he like popped on, and then he was like, "I'm gonna go black," you know, just like what, just let me know whatever this is. And so, and it just was like awkward starting out because the escape artist dude was like telling him what Fader is, and like then at some point, Quest was like. Yo, Rob, John, wasn't I on the cover of Fader? Like, what is, like, you know, and I was like, oh, this is great. And he was like, anyway, we found this great writer. Wait, he's going to tell you about what the story is. I was like, okay. And so I pitched the story to him, like, to his black screen, you know? Was he on mute, too, so you couldn't, like, hear his reaction? Yeah, he was on mute, getting his hair braided for The Tonight Show. And then I finish, and I just hear, like, kind of from the depths of the blackness, he's, he's like, so are you trying to do like how to make an America or entourage or like, what is this? You know? And I was like, no, this is more like Mad Men. Like I'm trying to make it, you know, I think first of all, I think Mad Men is like funnier than those shows. Like still there's a comedic thing to it, but it's hour long. It's serious. It's the back, it's the historical backdrop, you know, in this changing world that like existed in those early two thousands, as you know, very well that meet me in the bathroom shit. And, um, and he came on and he was like, you know, I'm, I'm asking these questions because I'm interested or whatever. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but that happened. The Oscar, he was like, I can't get back to you until after the Oscars. The Oscars happened two weeks later and literally three days after the fucking slap, which like that's when he was getting his Oscar. Oh, my God. He was the one who was receiving that. it. And he's from Philly. It was like crazy to just watch that occur <laughs> and be like, I had just talked to this dude. Literally three days after that, his agent calls up escape artist and he's like he is offered the world and all he wants to do is fader and so that took another six months for that deal to make and then that deal made and then you know basically at the top of this year we went to freebie and sold it and then right before the strike happened i turned in the first draft fuck and that was like a full hour long hour long holy shit yeah well congrats to you man thanks man so you how does so that now work? it's frozen. Now well, it's like, I didn't even get notes that on was my it. Question. I literally turned it in like a week or two before the strike happened. I was like, they were trying to scramble to like get thoughts and notes, but like obviously they were scrambling with everything. And so now it's literally, there's just on pause, like everything else. I mean, it's just, it's just nothing, you know? Do, does it make you, like, do you feel anxious? Like, have you, like, I am actually, what, how do I put this? Because I know like 99% of people are like kind of not working. I feel okay. And like, not like every day, normally I would wake up and like go to this little shitty office and just like grind until five o'clock or whenever it's time to go home and like be a dad. Yeah. But these days I'm like, it's fucking summer. We're on strike. I want to be productive, but like, I don't feel this like need to at the moment. And it's kind of nice. I don't know. Absolutely. I mean, I think the truth is, is like, there are those times, at least from my perspective, that like sometimes it's input and sometimes it's output. And like you could do both things at once, but usually there's one that's kind of more kind of in the driver's seat of your of my at least kind of creative life. And I think this is an incredible time to be input, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm always like there's just so much to read, there's so much to watch. It's fucking a, a stack that's never going to disappear. You know what I mean? And so for me, I'm sort of like just sit back and fucking watch some shit and feel it's like get some other stories inside of you and see what it is and don't feel the pressure to like put out cuz it's like we're just kind of in a vacuum and nothing can go anywhere. I mean, obviously if you fucking feel something and you want to do something, do it. But like, this is an awesome time to just, I guess it could be an awesome time to like write that thing that you've always wanted. Yeah, everyone's to write like, or, are you writing? I'm like, I don't think, I don't think this is like, Oh, let's fucking write. Because personally, I don't think that like the the strike is going to end and people will be like, what have you been working on? Like people are going to be like, I have so many things that I have to get back to that were frozen before that. Like, opening up to like what's new right now doesn't seem like the thing i mean you know obviously the landscape will have changed so if you're gonna write fucking write and it you know and good on you for being able to but like ultimately this is a quiet time and you know might as well just do that wait last question for you is there any advice you give to people that are thinking of being a writer or an actor or making a career as an artist like is there anything you would say to them that are just starting out sort of uh inspirational realistic or otherwise i mean i think it's really just about listen to your gut you know i know that sounds so basic but like listen to your gut and fucking follow what makes you happy 
You know what I mean? Follow what stuff you really like. Because the truth is, you know, chasing a moment is not something that ever works out. You know what I mean? Like if you're trying to be like, this is what the business wants or whatever, like you always just have to do like what gets you interested because ultimately you're going to go through those times with your project where you're just like, I can't eat this anymore. I can't sit back at the table and fucking eat it again. And like you have to get to a place where it's that food that you can do it as much as you humanly can because you keep coming back to it and back to it and going through all of the fucking emotional gamuts that are are out there for like when you're creating something. And so it's just about do something that you're interested and that you like and just follow that because there's nothing else. Wait, thank you so much for coming to Laurel Canyon and doing this. This is the best. This is the end. I have so much more to talk about. What what can we talk about? No, no, no. I mean, the one other thing that I will say just in terms of, what I've been working on this year is yeah. that I went to do this Benedict Cumberbatch show. Wait, you know? what? Yeah, we talked about that. You you texted me. You said, "Congrats on Eric, dog." Did, you oh, did know I get, maybe I was stoned. Like, was this announced? I'm or sure. did you? Well, I was stoned. This one was announced. This okay. is this okay. is what I should have spent my time talking okay. about instead okay. of fucking <laughs> the thing that's in development that no one knows that I'm going to get in trouble for discussing. But like, no, and also this is just the thing of to kind of tie it all back together and coming back to acting because I feel like. After the insecure grownish time, I was sort of like, I'm n- I, I want to create something for myself, but like auditioning had become so difficult for me. I was like, I don't know that I'm, I don't know what that's going to look like, but it was sort of weighing on me that like acting is the thing that brought me into this and performing like we talked about is like a form of self-expression that I absolutely need, you know, to, to, to survive. And I didn't really get that fulfillment on Insecure, you know, and I hadn't really been doing it that much besides like being in class or whatever, those times like way back in the day of being on stage, you know, four or five years ago or whatever. And then I ended up not going back to Gronish. There was an opportunity for me to come back to Gronish this year. And I made the very difficult decision of not doing that and was like, you know, told my reps, like I want to audition again. And one of the first ones that I auditioned for was this show called Eric, which is this Benedict Cumberbatch limited series that I shot in fucking Budapest at the top of this year. And I just get to play this like really interesting character. It's essentially like a, he's like a Jim Henson type figure. He's created one of the most beloved children's shows in New York, but is, has an addictive personality. You know, he's kind of a drunk and a philanderer or whatever. And then it turns into a missing person show. His nine-year-old boy goes missing. And then at the end of the pilot, he's, Am I like giving that way? Maybe I shouldn't say exactly what goes from there. Don't tell us. Don't tell us. (laughs) Don't tell you what happens. (laughs) Spoiler alert before they've even dropped a trailer. No, I'll say that much, which essentially it turns into a missing person show. But it's this like really beautiful, you know, six episode show that was written by Abby Morgan, who wrote like Shame, you know, Mm -hmm. Steve McQueen's Shame. And just like this kind of British lens on 80s New York um, and yeah, it's just Lucy Forbes directed it who came off doing the second season of End of the Fucking World and this is going to hurt. Just like really dope British artists working. Um, Are you and Benedict and, Cumberbatch texting and shit? Like did you guys Absolutely hit it off? not. No, oh, we fuck. had like, the show is really sprawling. It's a big cast. You know what I mean? It's like kind of sprawling and intimate and has these sort of sliding doors moments. And I am essentially a club owner uh in the area that the kid disappeared and have like a little bit of a, you know, foggy background in terms Mm -hmm. of dealing with children and dealing with sex and celebrity and all that. And, um, and have this relationship with the lead detective who's essentially the number two slash number. It's kind of a two hander between Benedict and the guy who's investigating like where this, you know, children met. So me and Benedict only cross like once or twice in the show very briefly, but we did meet and, um, He's cool as fuck. And the show's called Eric? Right now it's called Eric. And where's yeah. it coming? Netflix, baby. I Net- don't know when. Okay. I don't know. I'm I've talked about way too much. No, shit. dude. But yeah, but that I just had to sort of talk about no, that we, because I mean, yeah. It was an incredible thing to like be able to get to work and like uh, you know, breathe life into a character in a way that I hadn't gotten to do like in a really long time. Um and you know, I'm still just recurring on that show also, but like I'm in every episode and like just get a little bit of an arc. So it was dope. Wait, I as you do a lot. You're the best, dude. Bro, Seriously. I, I, this was a fantastic. We're only talking about like but, one eighth of what's going on. And it's you know, I honestly think I talked about more than I should have. No, no. Not but, even should have, but just in terms of 
Yes, you're right. You're the best, dude. Thank you. I, I truly appreciate you. I, I so so I'm so happy to see that it is all coming together because you know we we came up together and Absolutely. you know truly to, to bring it back of like you know when in you're in your 20s you feel i felt like so competitive with everyone yeah. and all these fucking kids you know that whose parents can just sort of like boom invent something well and it's them. a wild thing too cuz both our parents are in the business also but it's a different thing know. you know what i mean like i mean my mom is a legend as are your parents in these I very wish. different I'm like, ways like dad can i fucking can you please help me get a fucking job well i mean the truth is though is like my mom is a legend but she was never really able to help me get a job i mean the, the best things that she ever gave me was just a savviness of the business and a sort of commitment to excellence of like wanting to be really clear and good at what we do, because ultimately that's kind of going to be the only thing that matters. I mean, maybe that's not true. And obviously nepotism is a big thing that's rampant and helps a lot of people and has helped me in different ways. You know what I mean? But like, it's a different thing being Katzenberg's son, being Winkler's son, that it is being, you know, the son of, of our parents, but you know, the, the, main, the, the main help I got was my dad helped me get a job. Someone had to drop out as the VFX PA on Terminator 3 in 2003. <laughs> and so they were like, we need a PA like tomorrow. And I was 17. I couldn't even, I could only work eight hours. So like oh I started God. like whatever. And then I, I was the only PA that like wrap out. <laughs> and then, and then on Project Greenlight season three. Oh, I remember. Yeah, you did that. He helped me get that. And then from there, like I just sort of. I was off to the races and made as many connections as I could, like with. Whomever. I mean, watching you and Wolf build your company was always inspiring. Oh, Seriously, like you. Wolf House shit was really dope. You guys thank were you. doing stuff and then went off and did your own things, like independently and followed that. That was also something that I was watching very closely. Like, oh, thank you, dude. I mean, it made me want to come to you and say, "I better make a fucking movie before you." <laughs> but you but did. Still, you did. I did, but still, it was like that type of competition can be healthy. Obviously, yeah. you know when things can take dark turns and stuff like that. But like, we have to push each other. We yeah. need each there in order to fucking grow and go yep should we get high always all right dog let's do it 